Shalom, shalom, wonderful friends. It's great to be with you today. Thank you so much for joining. I'm sorry for the uh, change in in schedule. I try to keep to our schedule, but we don't want to fall behind. And we are up to um, uh, number 38 which or, or nine, one of the two, might actually be 39 um, of the 45. And, oh, and I'm sorry for the spelling mistake on the front page, his name. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, but I am so glad you all are here and, uh, for this important topic. And there are so many directions we could go with Michel Foucault. Um, and um, uh, and let's start with a poll question just to get our our our, our juices flowing here. And I'm sorry, there is no spelling mistake in the front. It's perfectly fine. I just think it was Michel Foucault. I forgot the poll part. All right. So on power, power is only one of 100 issues we could take directions we could take. Power is binary. There's the powerful and the powerless. Power is multidirectional. Everyone holds different forms of power. Or power necessarily corrupts. Which of those most resonates with your thinking today on power? Power is binary. There's the powerful and the powerless. There's there's Pharaoh and the slaves. Um, power is multidirectional. Everyone holds different forms of power. But power necessarily, not that those are at odds with each other. Um, okay, let's see the results there. Okay, 83% are taking the multi-directional view, 17% on the necessarily corrupt view, and that is one of the issues we will discuss a little bit today. So friends, what is power in the context of human societies? How is it concentrated or dispersed, and how does it move through and, and between different systems? Born into an economically and socially stable family in 1926 in France, Michel Foucault received a solid education and originally studied psychology, despite his father's wish that he too become a surgeon. In his youth, he had significant mental health cha challenges and struggles, which doctors attributed to his being a gay man in a society that did not embrace such an identity. He went on to earn his doctorate in philosophy, studying at the École Normale Supérieure, where, where he was influenced by Jean-Paul Sartre and Louis Althusser, focusing on relationships between power, knowledge, and society. His great works continue to influence philosophy and social science discourse today. Some of his significant works include Madness and Civilization, published in 1961, I see Aglaia's got some thoughts on that one. Discipline and Punish in 1975. And the multi-volume, The History of Sexuality, 
published after his death in 1984, <coughs> related to HIV AIDS. Often cited as a postmodernist and a post-structuralist, one of his major ideas following Nietzsche is that ideas are not eternal, but rather emerge over time through the structures and discourses that make up human society. To properly understand them, we must participate in what he refers to as genealogy, a term borrowed from Nietzsche in which the development of ideas are analyzed over time. This process often reveals the contingent nature of ideas we assume to be unchanging, while also digging up evidence from the past that may point to counter-narratives about how concepts and beliefs came to be and what their meanings might actually be. One of the major insights of Foucault is the way in which discourses shape our understanding of the world. While the term is normally understood as communication through speech, Foucault has something much bigger in mind with it. For him, discourses are the language, knowledge, and institutions that determine how we make sense of the world. They are what makes something knowable to us, thereby granting it a sense of ontological truth, so to speak. Perhaps the most famous analysis of discourse in his writings is found in The History of Sexuality, Part 1, where he examines the development of modern notions of sexuality. The common understanding is that before the developments of the last century, sexuality was a repressed feature of human life, particularly in the Victorian era. It existed, but wasn't meant to be talked about publicly. And it's only with the sexual revolution of modernity that we can now acknowledge the proper place of human sexuality and human life. Foucault, however, disagrees with this narrative and sees sexuality not as something that has been revealed by removing repression and prohibition, but as having been produced by discourses such as science and politics. In the 19th century, science began to view sexuality as a matter of human health, and therefore it was understood to be something that could be done and experienced in ways that were both healthy and unhealthy. As a result, sexuality needed to be monitored and policed, for a society has a responsibility to ensure the welfare of its citizens. It became an object of the law and therefore something to be defined and legislated. Additionally, because sexuality is an amorphous concept, the only way to get at it was through speech. People would have to describe their experiences of sexuality to others who would then analyze them to determine what they mean. It was only by talking about sex could the truth of sexuality emerge, an idea that would come to the fore with psychoanalysis. From this example, Foucault was able to see that power rarely functions as we think it does. Rather than being situated in positions of authority, which then issue dictates that we must submit to, power is found in the language and structures that enable us to understand the world around us. The language and institutions of science, health education, and therapy can cause us to view ourselves as and others in very specific ways, thereby imposing powerful constraints on our existence. In Foucault's way of thinking, power is not something that is acquired, seized, or shared, something that one holds onto or allows to slip away. Power is exercised from innumerable points. And the consequences of this, he explains, is that points of resistance exist everywhere in the power network. 
Hence, there is no single locus of great refusal, no soul of revolt, source of all rebellions, or pure law of the revolutionary. In a sense, power is a multi-directional affair akin to what we see in physics. The force of gravity exerted by the earth is strong and holds all of us down, but that doesn't preclude us from also exerting force upon ourselves and each other. In fact, if it wasn't for gravity, we wouldn't be able to move at all. We would take one step into space and keep on floating forever. We often experience power as a force that restricts us, but it's also what makes agency possible at all. In order to illustrate the complexities of power, Foucault dedicated significant energy to examine the development of modern prisons. He contends that it wasn't that long ago when criminal punishment was often conceived of primarily as a public spectacle, such as hanging, which demonstrated the power of the king and was intended to send a message to his subjects. However, it eventually shifted to primarily a form of imprisonment, which secludes criminals from the rest of society. According to Foucault, prisons function differently from the rest of society, but in doing so also served as the forerunner for many aspects of modern life. In prison, criminals were subjected to a comprehensive disciplinary regimen that regulated what they wore, how they talked, what they eat, and how they acted. Failure to comply with them would lead to punishment. Foucault went so far as to argue that the ideal form of a prison would be one in which convicts were not policed by guards, but rather policed themselves. To explain this, he turned to Jeremy Bentham's idea of the panopticon, a prison designed so that all inmates could be monitored by one person, while each inmate could not be certain that they were, they were being watched at any given time. They knew the possibility existed and therefore had to monitor their behavior to ensure they did not transgress the rules and be punished. For Foucault, the model of the panopticon became a metaphor for the way in which modern society does not demand subservience to a king, but inculcates within us an awareness that we are being watched by others and must make sure to adhere to a set of standards and values. Those who fail to live up to them are then pathologized and criminalized. While at first glance, there is little in common between Foucault and Judaism, one might say, because so much of the Jewish tradition has been shaped around the experience of being a minority, it often shows a sensitivity to the nuances of power articulated by Foucault. In Egypt, Pharaoh subjugates the Jews through a form of state slavery and eventually declares all Jewish baby boys to be killed as soon as they're born. However, enacting this decision requires the participation of the Egyptian midwives who tend to the Jews. While women are not typically considered in a position of power in Egyptian society, the midwives' role in delivering infants makes them an important part of the social structure. As Foucault noted, the point of power is the point of resistance and the midwives are able to resist Pharaoh and save the Jewish babies by telling him 
that the Jewish women give birth too quickly for them to carry out this genocidal plan. Their resistance to Pharaoh does not seek to bring about a revolution, but it saves lives nonetheless. Similarly, in the Megillah, in the Megillah, Megillah Esther, Esther is an orphan who is essentially abducted and made the bride of Ahasuerus, the most powerful man in the known world. Though she may be the queen, she's incredibly vulnerable. For Ahasuerus can dispose of her easily at any time, as we've seen him do with others, like Vashti. Meanwhile, Haman, boo, uses his political powers as the king's favored minister to carry out his genocidal agenda against the Jews. Completely unaware that the greatest threat to his plan will come from a woman who appears to be without any real power. Mordechai urges Esther to act, despite her apparent lack of power, and she goes and speaks to the king in a way that turns the entire story upside down. While much of Judaism seems to be on the same page as Foucault when it comes to his descriptions and critiques of power, it gets more complicated when we factor in how his ideas about language and knowledge relate to all of this. The rabbinic project assumes a continuity of tradition and religious truth that Foucault's critical <coughs> approach seeks to undermine. Nevertheless, the rabbis would probably agree with Foucault that language more than anything shapes our understanding of the world. As the book of Genesis makes clear, God created the world through speech, an idea that is developed by Sefer Yetzirah, an early mystical work, and then later taken up in Kabbalah in fascinating ways. However, it's not only God who shapes the world through language, but human beings as well. God's first task for Adam, after being created and placed in the Garden of Eden, is to give names for each of the animals God presents to him. The discourse of Halakha is all about ascribing the proper halachic category to the objects and actions we encounter in life, a discourse that is produced through the study of texts and the social interactions of rabbis and lay people. By the way, in a rather strange uh, rabbinic passage, the way that Adam comes to name the animals, anyone recall? Um, the Hebrew yada means to know somebody. But yada is also a, um, is a sexual uh, term in uh, for the rabbis that to know a person, right, is um, um, to be in a sexual relationship with them. Now, that could be viewed as kind of a um, uh, kind of a moral perversion um, of, of how we understand knowledge, right, that uh, knowledge needs to be intimate, and that feels um, unfortunate um, and potentially abusive and exploitative. Um, but the other way to think of it is to not as opposed to lowering what knowledge is about, to elevate what sexuality is about. Sexuality is not primarily about physical pleasure, but about knowing a person, right? To love a person is to know them, and part of knowing them is being intimate with them. And so, anyways, to get to my point, they imagine Adam having a sexual relationship with each animal. And in when Adam is intimate with the animal, he comes to know 
who they are and thus can name them. Um, so he names them through that that knowing. Um, and he's very lonely because he comes to learn as the first human being that um, these animals are not his life partner, uh, something we would take for granted today and, and consider uh, gross. I imagine most of us would consider gross um, and inappropriate um, to have a sexual relationship with a, with a non-human animal. But for him as the first person, we might give a pass because he has no clue what he's doing you know, in this in this kind of uh, drama. Um, in any case, that's a little bit of what's happening over there. Oh, anyway, so what, why, why was I bringing all this up? Because Sefer Yetzira says that God creates the world through language. And so to Adam, the first human, is known to kind of bring out one's essence, so to speak, through naming. That by giving initial language to creation, he's a part of this d- divine enterprise of creating through naming. Um, you know, to some degree, parents do that when they name a child and kind of tell the, say, state what the child's essence already is as if it's kind of known. And anyways, moving towards a conclusion here, Foucault's ideas have had a powerful influence on academia in the humanities and on the study of Talmud in particular. Scholars have attempted to apply Foucault's insights about the way discourse shapes sexuality to rabbinic texts, which frequently make gender and sexuality an object of study. In addition, Foucault's genealogical method has been used critically to undermine commonplace notions of Jewish history to show the existence of alternative understandings and counter-narratives. What do the ideas that Foucault presents mean for us? How can we better examine what our actions do? How can we gain perspective on how our language and what we think we know about the world inhibits our ability to contribute to meaningful change? What kind of power do, do you have that you feel you could you could make better use of? What kind of power do you have that you feel might be too dangerous? How can you disperse that power? How can we work with the institutions we interface with, particularly those where we have some amount of power that do not function as tools of oppression? Foucault is a challenging thinker who can inspire us to think more deeply about power dynamics in all their forms and who can help us think about the way we relate to ourselves in new and important ways. Okay, friends, that is just a jump off point for wherever folks want to go, um, uh, uh, you know, into some of these ideas that might, you know, uh, be percolating for you. So let's open the conversation wherever you'd like to go. With this. Okay, let the record show I was trying not to be first. Okay. Um, It depends on um, how unhappy you want this topic to get. Do you want me to go unhappy? You should go wherever you want to go. Okay. Well, I wrote this down because I didn't want to babble too much and everything today, though. But um, yeah, I've actually subjected my students um, to Michel Foucault. And this is kind of um, a harrowing idea to think about, especially considering the way the Foucault himself died. You know, he was first you know, to, and famous French person to die of AIDS, uh, but I'll um, pull out the quote, okay? So this is from, of course, Madness and Civilization, okay? Um, Everything was organized so that the madman would recognize himself in a world of judgment that enveloped him on all sides. He must know that he is watched, judge, and condemned. From transgression to punishment, the connection must be evident as a guilt recognized by all. Now, he's talking about basically, though, like society projecting its fears, 
on this one person. He's talking about this from the 18th century, which I refuse to call the Enlightenment because I'm sketchy term. But it's about like, you know, when reason is, you know, society's value, then you project all of your negativity onto the person who is mad, irrational, and all of that stuff. So we could use this. Now, bearing in mind, Foucault also told us to look for the differences between time periods versus just continuity and similarities. He said the differences were actually going to be pretty, you know, hardcore for epistemology anyway. Um, I don't want to say this. Um, how do we use this to find the differences between um, anti-Semitism today versus how it's been in other eras? I think I think um, it'd be great to hear that fleshed out a little more what you're thinking. I hear this first bit you're talking about in terms of what I understand you saying as that the transgressive, the outlier, the strange, the mad, the crazy, who society is afraid of and ostracizes and puts out and trying to understand that dynamic, um, that first bit. And then the second bit um, around different forms of anti-Semitism throughout the eras, I think what I missed was the connection between those two pieces. In other words, though, like the conspiracy theories and stuff like that, though, what Foucault did in uh, Madness and Civilization says basically the scapegoat of society ends up changing depending on what society is afraid of. So, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, society is afraid of someone who has leprosy. Society becomes afraid of someone who's mentally ill. Now, in America, though, like the reason why I pulled that quote out, though, is to talk about it in African-American history. How did it, like, it become, you know, race become in America what people are afraid of? Mm. And so I'm kind of looking, it was basically thinking about it in terms of, well, looking at the conspiracy theories and the power issues that go on in those conspiracy theories, since we were talking about power. That's why I kind of didn't want to say it, but... Mm -mm. No, I'm glad you said that. That's really interesting. Um, that's really interesting. And um, uh, I'm curious to see where other people want to engage with this. And Aglaia, I hope it can be a dialogue a little bit, because um, I think this is uh, this is really important and and, and interesting. Um, if uh, um, let's let's um, if, let me ask folks here, what I mean, who who are people? afraid of today, um, whether they are well-based fears or not well-based fears. I mean, a well-based fear might be something like people in prison, right? There's people who are violent or sociopaths who one is just terrified of, and that's a legitimate fear, of course. Then there's other fears that are built up from media hype or conspiracy theories or the like, where one is afraid of the foreigner, whether that be... Um, you know, the the Muslim, um, because they associate them with a radical Islamist, afraid of a Chinese person because they associate them with communist Chinese government, afraid of um, of Central American um, asylum seekers because they're associated with gangsters and thugs, thugs as the media is portrayed. And so, um, but what's interesting about the Jew is that the Jew throughout history has yeah been a scapegoat for what society was often most afraid of. Um, so if if it was if the worst thing was the killer of Christ, well then it must be the Jews who did that. And if the worst thing was communism, then it must be the Jews who founded that. And if the worst thing was was socialism or, or communism, then it must be Jews who founded that. <laughs> you know, going back to Marx. 
Um, and, you know, and if the worst thing, you know, as we discussed today is, you know, fill in the blank, then the Jews must be guilty of that. And, um, uh, and how that, um, how the inability to put the Jew in a box in racial, in an overly racialized world, um, you know, doesn't serve well those who want to kind of have everybody pinned. And so um, I'm just, uh, Aglaia, I'd like to bring you back in here before we go to Matthew, kind of like how, 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 how you would think about this, this question you're raising. Um, it's basically though, like one of the things that I've looked at though, is that um, minorities um, in your community are not supposed to rise too high. And the thing is though, is that also um, it depends on which um, like, area you're okay if you're, we'll talk about america we'll just kind of look at america for right now um you know just looking at the u.s well one of the things the jews were accused of for during the civil rights movement of encouraging blacks to you know say hey we want our civil rights and everything and all you have to do is look at you know andrew goodman michael schwerner you know like basically though like they died because of this idea so one of the things that I'm thinking of is that every time, like one of the triggers seems to be that, you know, who are Jews actually aligned with? And also um, just the Louisiana thing, just to pull, you know, throw this out there, just because while I'm from Louisiana, this is something that is just in our history, though. But the idea that someone can pass for white when they're different is something that I think um, a lot of people freaks a lot of people out. Now, when I talk about American history and I say I get bring out F. Scott Fitzgerald and what does the character of Meyer Wolfshine mean in The Great Gatsby, you know, for instance, so like a lot of the time though they completely miss the idea that this is an anti-Semitic trope that actually F. Scott Fitzgerald has pulled out. So also it is, you know, I mean, a lot of the time though they don't read The Great Gatsby anymore in schools. However, though, why were they so afraid of someone like Meyer Wolfsheim? He did everything that, you know, that all of the other Americans did. He went out, he wanted to become wealthy and everything, though. Mm -hmm. So why is it wrong for Meyer Wolfsheim to do it when? Yeah. So that's kind of like, I mean, there's also, I mean, not to stress the continuity of it, because I'm not sure Foucault would actually say, but there's a push and pull with the continuity and also later developments, because, well, later developments, well, they're saying Jews are the ones encouraging Blacks to fight for civil rights. Jews are the ones who are encouraging, you know, communism. Jews are the ones doing this. Though. So and a lot of the time, though, I think also, well, what if someone actually can, you know, basically, because... They effectively look white, but are they white? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So okay, yeah. very interesting. Thank you. Um, yeah. Okay, you gave us a lot to think about. Thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm still trying to get my head around it. So just to pick up on what Sarah and Lauren put in the chat over there around the real widespread fear of Trump um, globally and uh, domestically, and I think part of that fear is not just um, the type of damage that could be done. Um, but also kind of a fear of kind of a, what m one might associate as, you know, a narcissism, a socio, a sociopath, one who really has no sense of boundaries in any sense. But what's interesting, picking up on this kind of, um, madness and this kind of minority versus majority is this populist spirit 
that actually makes a majority pretend to be a minority to say, actually, we, as those, um, you know, stoking a base of white supremacists, we as white supremacists, you know, view ourselves as an alienated uh, minority seeking to be replaced, right? not seeking to be replaced, that, that others are seeking to replace. And we are trying to, um, as a minority, break out of the system, right, the, the broken political system um, in this populist spirit of, you know, drain the swamp. And what that does is foster a whole society of distrust. Distrust is higher than ever before in America. Distrust of democracy uh, and, and elections. Distrust of media, that media is fake news. Distrust of science and vaccinations. Distrust of the judiciary. Distrust of liberal education. It goes on and on of, of a fundamental distrust uh, that gets built into um, this 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 type of approach. And um, yeah, it's very interesting to to think about how that how that fear is playing out right now and how American society is kind of evolving with that. And the fear on the other side that people really do. It's not all malicious. People really feel they're being replaced. They're being replaced in some way that's destroying what America's about, right? And that's something for us to understand, not just dismiss as hateful. Um, as, as difficult as that may be for some of us. Anyways, we're, we're all over the place right now. So, uh, Matthew, over to you. <laughs> when we were in New Orleans last year, uh -huh. we went down to the Museum of Southern Jewelry. And it's something everyone should go to. It's, it's not a Jewish museum per se. It's a museum about what Jews in the South were like, including during the civil rights era, the number of synagogues who fired their rabbis being active in the civil rights movement, the number of Jews who owned slaves and stuff. And it's a very small museum. And it's worth going to because it destroys what I call the monolithic myth that everyone was on the side of goodness. Mm -hmm. The second thing is when you talk about power, to me, the issue is not just power, but people's feeling of loss of control and the myth of the Jewish businessman cabal, the Soros controlling the world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that we're, we want to take back not just power, but the control of our lives. Mm -hmm. And on a very micro level, there was something in the paper, local paper last week or so, that Aon Corporation, which makes tasers, bought all this land for their corporate headquarters in an area that's only zoned commercial and industrial. Mm. And now they said that we want to build a couple of thousand apartments and a hotel in this area. And essentially it said, if we can't build it here, maybe we'll relocate all our corporate offices, et cetera, someplace else because we have the power. And the local people were protesting, saying, hey, you bought it with these shoes. They said, oh, we'll give you $10, 20000000 million. And it's a microcosm of people feeling they have no control and no power. And I think a lot of what we see with Trump and MAGA, and I understand it, is people think their lives are being controlled by someone. They, have, they don't even know who, who is the corporation, who is the mm -hmm. person doing this. Who is the politician? And I don't know the answer. We now have national campaigns for local office. 
Mm-hmm. Give money to Michigan. Give money to Colorado. You got to step up and give money in another state, in another state. And that's what's dividing a lot of this country. It's the lack of where they had control of power. They thought they did, and now they think someone else is. And blame the Jews. It's Soros. It's the Jewish money from New York and L.A. that's doing these things. Stop! Stop Arizona from being California. And I just, I know I'm rambling, mm-hmm. but. Yeah. Yeah. So th- thank you. Yeah. I mean, part of the, part of the argument um, is that I, that the discourse of ideas is not just um, a discourse of truth. It's a, dis- it, it, it's a, it's a system of power that people are engaged in argumentation that is about their interests of holding power. And that might sound purely cynical, but I don't think it has to be. Um, it's just kind of the human reality. And as it relates to what Matthew's sharing here around control, so too, that the way we talk to people in many ways is about control. Now, control can be positive morally because we want to have agency, moral agency. We have control. We have responsibility for our decision making. Spiritually, control can be viewed as a negative because we want to let go of control. Forget just dying, just even in the moral development in the Musar approach. Where am I doing what Rabbi Yisrael Salantra calls kibush hayetzer, kind of conquering my inclination, controlling my negative vices, versus where am I kind of letting them go as opposed to kind of holding them tightly? That's a great conversation spiritually around what we're trying to do. And then politically, the conversation you're moving towards of who controls me. And I think a big part of growing up in the world as a child and as an, as, as an adolescent and as a young adult, as a teenager, is trying to break free from those who control us. The rebellion against parents, the rebellion against teachers, the rebellion against society is in many ways a sense of this human striving for control. And so too, I think in the political discourse, one of the one of the the, the pulls back towards tribalism away from kind of a cosmopolitanism, if you will, is of like that my tribal group has control and that then the other groups are a threat to my control. And um, I, and I don't know what to do about that because we can't, um, we can't be colorblind and we can't remove difference. And yet um, to be stuck in such a constant battle for control is the downfall of most of our societies um, that just constantly one of the, the one of the society. questions is yeah. when do you not speak up i was in a situation last friday i was with a bunch of other men we get together occasionally we never talk politics but that was very clear where four of the five are and the gene carroll judgment came out was on everyone's phone and one guy said something, and the fifth person, known for a number of years, said, disgusting, horrible, Trump is the greatest president and man we've ever known in our lives. What's interesting is he felt so aggravated that he crossed the line within the group. And the conversation just kind of petered out to back to what we were doing. And when we left, the four of us were driving back because we was at his house. And the one guy said, I'll make a bet. He's got the hat and everything. He said, oh, yeah, he was, he, for all I know, he was there January 6th, but we've never talked about it. But all of a sudden, 
he felt he had to cross that line. And I don't know if I want to go to the next, I don't know if that group's going to fall apart already. Right. So for two and a half years, everyone's skirted around the issue. And it's, he just feels lack of power, lack of control. It's just very interesting because I know him probably three, four years. Some of these people go back 20 years with this gentleman, his friends. You know, he just felt threatened by that kind of verdict. It just opened up the, it opened up the wound and the puzzle came out in his mind. Yeah, it is. Um, it's an interesting question as to whether that is a small thing or everything. Is it a small thing in that, geez, we we all like having lunch and going bowling and and discussing this and that and praying together and doing all these things? Why should we let this tiny thing called politics get in the way? We should just keep it on the outside because it's or is it everything in you know, that such, such a radically different orientation towards the issue is so fundamental to who we are as human beings and that we can no longer be in a group together because of that different orientation? You, you know? know what Rabbi Volpe said about dating in this. Dating? When you no, date okay. someone, yeah. you're not allowed to talk politics the first date because otherwise you rule out 50% of the people you may date. <laughs> and he says you have to put it aside, uh-huh. have the first date, because you may find out the person's really horrible, but they agree with you politically, and you might have kept going. And he says you have to get it out of the initial discourse to see if there's other ways you can communicate. Well, I think that that's very interesting. I think these days in the dating world and all the apps, uh, everyone makes it pretty clear where they stand um, or, or try to use some acrobatics of being apolitical. But yeah, that's that is very interesting. Yeah, that once you already have a relationship and a connection, and um, that you might be able to understand it a little bit more differently. So, okay. Well, um, another friend of mine just broke off a childhood friendship and this is a woman in her 70s with someone she's been friendly with with elementary school over the trump issue that the line has finally gone across too far thank you matthew very yeah. very cool all right lauren hi, hi lauren instead of responding to that because i know we're going on tangents <laughs> but it's man it's so hard i have like one trumper friend only and um <laughs> feels like a confession I didn't know she was a Trumper before we became friends. I knew she was a transplanted American living in Toronto. Um, and because, because we did like new and stuff together, never entered my mind that she would be a Trumper. And then, you know, it happened. And I'm telling you, it's like, it's like walking on eggshells with her. I mean, she's also very pro-conservative in Canada. And of course, I'm very pro-liberal. And uh, she's reform, I'm modern orthodox, really hard, but I'm trying my best to see her as a fellow human being. And she gives me much less credit, but I think that's because of her right-wing bent. And um, then it's hard, you know, I'm glad I'm not in the work world anymore. I'm glad to be tired. One, because of this Trumpism thing, which affects Canada too. I mean, I think something like 85% of Canadians in a poll absolutely hate Trump. So I feel good about being a Canadian that way. But, um, and, and the anti-Semitism thing, which is like so popular now, I, I would really be terrified to be working in a, in a hospital um, situation. Anyways, that's, 
Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, I mean, there's really um, a lot at stake right now, not just with personalities of public figures, but around core understandings of human beings and what they are. You know, um, one of the ways one might understand what white supremacy was about was that it was about um, giving value to people solely based upon what they could produce for the system. Um, as opposed to an inherent value. Now, Foucault has a term, disciplinary power, disciplinary power. And what Foucault meant by that is um, that we want to use, body, use bodies in society as productively as possible. Um, we want bodies to be obedient and not to revolt against power. And so we use discipline in schools and discipline in society at large, and to some degree even in communities, in order to um, ensure that bodies are productive and bodies don't revolt. And to some degree, that is part of the debates today politically around workers, around economy, around criminal justice, around the educational system, of what do we primarily view people as? And how do authority figures use power over um, um, over others? And um, yeah, I think these orientations are very different. And that's why some, some of the biggest political issues right now are ones that are precisely about the movement of bodies, um, partially as it relates to immigration. I mean, that, that, that is the biggest issue politically right now and as it was in 2016, of how do we discipline bodies who revolt against border laws? Um, and as it relates to a number of, of other kind of related issues around criminal justice as well. Um, and this is, uh, uh, and, and as it relates to policing as well, how much force should police, you know, should, we, should be used in policing? And of course, there's a range of, of views on that. And um, this is about the political conversation about law and order. Are you for, quote unquote, law and order or um, or do you want a less disciplinary approach? And this is uh, this. This, of course, evokes a lot of emotion. Oh, sure. The water's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fascinated by. How, how we've gotten down this particular rabbit hole. One of the things that I. I'm questioning myself is how we actually engage in civil discord and that discourse and and um, civil discord I can do, but civil discourse is harder. And how much can we control our own reactivity when we see or hear the other indeed is like a knee-jerk response. You know, it's like, for me, it's Trump, MAGA followers, the, but also the insularity of the thinking. And I have to then reflect how much of it is also my insular thinking. And I'd be not only curious about my thinking, but theirs as well. And to try and maintain 
that non-reactive curiosity that can begin to make it um, a possibility of speaking to one another. And um, and I don't know if I've closed off or not. Um, How do we do that? Because I think for me, that is what our tradition is most deeply rooted in is the questioning, the curiosity, the allowing for lots of different viewpoints. I think the, the part that's hard for me is that it it now is an armed or at least feels as if it could become an armed combat rather than a dis civil discourse. And I'm complete. Yeah, yeah, Sarah, thank you for all that. And I think that gets to the heart of a lot of this tension right now around how power as a violent conflict um, versus power in language um, is kind of in a gray space right now because of the civil discord you spoke about and how triggered many of us can be and how those of us engaged in spiritual work try to transcend those triggers when possible to, towards a place of curiosity, as you said. Um, but one has to be safe and or have a privilege to even engage in that relational curiosity. Um, and where does this just move from, you know, valid difference of values and language um, into kind of crossing real lines around violence and it's incredibly, um, incredibly difficult to make sense of right now and what this is going to look like in 2024. We're just in a whole new terrain um, around someone with 90 felony charges, you know, uh, being the, the 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 inevitable GOP nomination and um, someone who has, you know, has multiple accusations of rape um, and who has tens of millions of people loyal to him regardless of anything he does. In fact, any crime accusation, um, you know, um, strengthens the base. The, it's, a, it's a persecution. And so um, this is a very strange time. And yet, um, uh, and yet I think it's a time for us to be mindful, not just afraid, but a time for us to be mindful precisely of what Foucault is helping us think about, how language is shaping our society right now and um, how these scapegoating activities, uh, you know, and the sense of how we talk about madness um, is all really understood in this uh, such precarious moment. Um, uh, good morning. I got a little late into this discourse, um, but the thought occurred to me, and I don't know, it was a couple of weeks ago to look into kind of a different way of looking at this power and control and things like this. So probably for the third time, I picked up Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Now here is a person that's totally powerless, totally out of control, Everything he's sort of learned about ethical, moral behavior is now been sort of blocked out 
because he has to conform to exactly what the guards and so forth uh, have dictated to him. And witnessed this from a psychiatrist point of view and then subsequently wrote the books. So it seems to me that what he's saying here in Man's Search for Meaning, um, first off, it's man's search because his well, experience has only been with the group of men. But he comes out with, I think anyway, um, more of a perspective on, on healing. And that seems to be his sort of focus, his, his meaning in life, his path is to help people heal from traumas. Now it doesn't have to be the Holocaust survivor, it could be anything, but um, basically a healing process as opposed to how can we regain power? How can we regain um, you know, control? And I guess, though, he doesn't leave out the fact that, you know, your meaning in life could be revenge, but uh, it's more like, how can you come to peace with all that's happened to you? And I just throw that out because it seems to turn this whole thing upside down when you talk about power and control and mm -hmm. whether I like to, you know, talk about it or do anything about it. Um, he's just saying, well, you know, you got to search for your own meaning in life. And if you decide that that is revenge and a struggle with power, current power, then so be it. But uh, more than likely, it's going to be more on the, you know, healing side from all this and finding a new direction. Great, Ed. I'm so glad you went in that direction. Thank you so much. Because if the center of the world is the media, what the media tells us is the center of the world, we are just so powerless and sideline players. But if the center of the world is our own mind, then boy, are we empowered to, to live a meaningful life. That as a survivor, um, survival is not about force and control. Survival is about the power of my subjective ideas, my ability to make meaning of my life. I can do that totally in isolation, in my own space, outside of the societal systems of power. Right. And that those who are most most likely to survive are those constructing meaning of their lives. And um, I think that's a, it's a really. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's a really important reminder about reclaiming uh, what matters to us and not letting others impose that upon us, ultimately. So thank you. Thank you. That's that's really interesting. Um, OK, our last few minutes here, um, if Gary or Arnie or Alex want to jump in at all. No, get not Gary this time, and Arnie is off, and Alex. So if not, then let's go back to you, Aglaia. If your hand is still up, I'm not sure if that's old or new. Okay. So the short version of this is if, if anyone wants to hear one of the ways that I actually handled this issue, anyone want to hear? The short version is, is that um, it's not easy um, to get up semester after semester. I mean, we're talking about, yeah, you know, like the frustration of political discourse I get it and everything. It's not easy to get up a semester after semester and have to show the pictures that I have to show and have the discourses that I have to like explain, like how did all of this happen and everything. And then have to actually explain to students, oh, by the way, you cannot let succumb to this. You can't because, well, here's, here's the thing. History is going to repeat itself. 
Um, unfortunately, though, like, you know, you see it, you get angry. And sometimes there's like no way that you can actually reconcile yourself with this. So what happens? I'm using the power of language. And I'm really sorry about what I'm about to say, though. But here's the thing. If if Thomas Jefferson walks in here right now, is he going to see me as his equal? Is he going to see me as someone who's like, no, he's not going to. But if I see him as he's only a slaveholder, that's all he is. No, then how am I better than him? Am I not repeating his mistake? It's treating him the same way he would treat me. So here's the thing. Do I have to let history repeat itself in me? Now, I'm outraged by the fact that he raped a 14-year-old. I'm outraged by a lot of things. And I'm outraged when I hear someone like calling E.G. Carroll all kinds of words that I hear around here. Um, but if I'm angry, well, I just see Maximilian Robespierre in front of me, how he went from being someone who had like really good intentions for France. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, he's like on the opposite side. He's just as bad as what he's trying to fight. So like the whole Nietzsche thing. So I just say, well, if my anger, what's my anger for all of this, my outrage for all of this, if it doesn't have compassion, then my anger lacks meaning. Speaking of Victor Franklin meaning. And so the only way that I could actually deal with it is, well, you're just as human as me. Even if you're calling E.G. Carroll, Gene Carroll, all kinds of things. But the problem is, though, is that um, there's a downside to this. But here's the thing. The upside is I don't have to let history repeat itself in me. We appreciate the idea you're sharing here. And um, and I think that um, what partially what you're getting at here is that we can't become what we hate in the world, um, even when we think it's righteous to do it on our side. And the very things that um, we see the abuse of power um, in, from whoever we see it from, um, that um, and their ability to, yeah, exactly, limit who we are. So too, we don't limit who others are, e even in our fear of those of us who may be afraid of a Donald Trump, um, cannot pigeonhole tens of millions of Americans as all being robots um, or simpletons or evil haters that we actually have to break out of that and see people more expansively, even when they might stand for something that scares us or upsets us. And so friends, um, the power discourses are all around us all the time and we participate in that, but we can also transcend it to some degree. And as Aglaia said in the conclusion, like compassion hurts, um, compassion can really hurt but it's also our pathway to salvation together. God bless. See y'all for Noam Chomsky next week.